Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Good morning. We are uh, continuing our journey through the book of Exodus. We are at the big chunk of Exodus uh, that is dedicated to instructions for building the Mishkan, building the traveling shrine, uh, as well as uh, all of the accoutrements, as well as the vestments for the priests. And uh, as you know, I've been a rabbi for 26 years. So I've been teaching this Parsha for 26 years. Hard to find a new way into the Parsha. Um, but... Uh, yeah, looking forward to digging in a little this morning. <clears throat> All right. So we are going to begin our study at Exodus 28. So we are at 28.1. Ve'ata hakrev alecha et aharon achicha ve'et banav itomi toch b'nei Yisrael lechanaholi. So you will bring forth your brother Aaron and his sons from among the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, uh, Elazar, and Itamar, the sons of Aaron. And you will make, uh, clothing, what do you call it? Garments that are considered kadosh, which means they are to be set aside. They are only to be used when, uh, Aaron is involved and the other priests are involved in serving in the sanctuary. And we're told they are lechavod ultifaret. They are to be made lechavod for honor and for dignity, ultifaret, and for beauty, right? When we love and think something is special or someone is special, we go out of our way to adorn them or it. <clears throat> You shall speak to those who are at the women's retreat. We just studied a whole bunch of texts related to the idea of lev, the idea of heart. <clears throat> For the biblical writers, the heart is the seat of thought. So um, the heart is the place where discernment happens. The heart is the place uh, where all kinds of um, considerations happen. It's the seat of personality. It's sometimes kind of code for the self. Um, all of it focuses in the heart. So in Torah, the brain is not the seat of thought. So, uh, so folks may live, those who are literally wise of live, wise of heart, which is in some ways, I think, a much... The more we're starting to understand about how things work, it's a much more comprehensive understanding of personality than we tend to do when we cut everything here, you know, at rational thought that we tend to celebrate, of course, in the industrialized West. So who is supposed to come forward to make all this stuff? Those who are wise of heart. Is wise a good translation of Kalkma? Hofma's wisdom. But isn't that what God uses to create the world? You're not rabbinic. Which is fine, but even they would say wisdom. 
Yeah, no, I mean wisdom, but I mean it's almost with a capital W. For the rabbis. For the rabbis. For the rabbis. Here, no. For the biblical author, no. It is post, post Tanakh, I mean post, post five books that you kind of get that bigger Sophia, you know, that whole idea of wisdom with a capital W. Um, so the, the translation skillful is not wrong. It just misses how the biblical world would have understood talent. Talent in the biblical world is not just about your ability. It's about your proclivity of what you would do with it. Right. So think about singers or piano players or violinists, whoever. They can be very skilled, but they don't move you. Right. They're technicians. So that's talent. Is that probably not. Right. Like you have to bring your heart to the work. You have to bring yourself to the work for it to shine. Right. For it to be beautiful. All right. So what, so you're going to say to all of the Chochmelev, right? That who I have given Ruach Chochman, the spirit of wisdom. So this is understood in the ancient world. This is always understood as a gift from God. This is not you. This is not your abilities. This is the gifts you have been given. So we often say, right? They're gifted. Right. Meaning that, you know, they're talented. So who's that gift from? Right. Obviously, in the biblical world, it is, of course, from God. So you, so you will you will take all of these who I have endowed with and they will make the clothes of Aaron. Right. Consecrating him as a priest to me. And these are the clothes that they shall make. The choshen, the ephod, the me'il, the ketonet, right? So we could look at them in English. People argue about it in English. It doesn't really matter in English. Um, do you say cloak? Do you say wrap? Do you say, right? It, it's a garment that you throw over your shoulders, right? So like you can use cloak, you can use wrap. Like it, so we have to kind of figure out what these are. Um, by their description later. It doesn't really matter what English you use to describe them. So, but what we know there's going to be is there's going to be a choshen. So this is going to be the breastplate. There's going to be in what's called an ephod. There's the me'il. In modern Hebrew, it was a coat. Um, there's a fringed tunic, a headdress, and a sash. They shall make those sacral vestments for your brother Aaron and his sons for priestly service to me. And they will take gold, they will take uh, the gold, the blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and the fine linen. We've already been told in Truma, this is what the people are supposed to bring. So that the, these artists, these skilled artisans are going are gonna to take all of those materials. And like in Ms. Fine's class, mm-hmm. we're going to have a great big arts and crafts project. Mm-hmm. So, quick question. How much of the detail of the sort of the, the, the grandeur of the vestments and adornments is based primarily on the fact that this is what the pharaoh and the court wore for the last 400 years? So, you have to first decide which way the text is going, right? So, is it going from folks who were living in Egypt and then they get this commandment? Or 
did it develop in Canaanite territory? Um, right. But right. It, and then the story gets told that they went to Egypt. So if, they, if, they, if, it, if it developed in Canaanite territory, though, then wouldn't there be any archaeological record of uh, non-Israelite peoples having rituals with any of these kinds of artifacts? We, we know that these people had these rituals. All of these rituals come out of, of ancient Near Eastern pagan worship, not Egyptian. Um, however, having said that, Egypt and Mesopotamia were the two great empires. There's no way that anybody who wants to make their stuff special is not informed by the royal courts of and the priesthood of all of these places. So there's some discussion in Knoll and other sources about um, about uh, what do you call stuff having to do with the king? About royal, about royal garb. How much is about royalty? How much is about magic and like other kinds of? So, um, there's, there's debate about it, but for sure, if your people are going to have the most special garments there are, then you're looking to the most wealthy and powerful and celebrated garments around, which are, of course, pharaonic folk, you know, uh, the court and the priests, as well as in Mesopotamia. We still do that though with sure. movie people or sure. singers or I think it's extraterrestrial human culture. It's interesting that the people who made these weren't just people who blindly had to follow instructions. Even though they need to follow the instructions, they needed to have the chokhmah on top of following Beautiful. instructions. Beautiful. So there was a human input to this as well as God saying So it's, it's a partnership. Of, it's a part God doesn't say just bring me people who have nimble fingers. Right, that's because I'm giving them the right, but beautiful. So that God wants folks who are going to also bring something to the creation of this. Beautiful. You use the word katan also. No, I use the word ketonet. Oh, okay. So Joseph wears a ketonet pasim. Um, this is a ketonet tashbets. So katan tali. That that's the word katan with a kuf meaning small. Kutonet is with a chaf. Yeah. It's a different letter. Kuf and chaf are different letters. Yeah. It's Kutonet is a coat. Katan is about small, is about size. They are different etymologies. They are different words entirely. It's like S-E-A and S-E-E. They have nothing to do with each other. All right. So, um, so you will receive all of that. They will receive all of that and they will make the ephod of gold, blue, purple and crimson yarns and a fine twisted linen worked into designs. Shall have two shoulder pieces attached. They shall be attached at its two ends. We're not going to go into too much detail about the stuff I have in years past. Those of you who haven't heard it, go on the podcast. You can hear all about these garments and see um, on YouTube attachments of what they look like. The decorated band that is upon it shall be made like it of one piece with it of gold, blue, purple and crimson yarns and a fine twisted linen. So now here's one of the things we're going to be focusing on this morning. And you will take, you will take two stones and you will engrave on them the names of the descendants of Israel. In the ancient Near East, um, the work of the lapidary was celebrated, especially in cultic and royal circles, which is the art of micro engraving. Yes. So 
they had a level of, of, of highly skilled artisans working. Now, what what time you know what time point? I mean, you said twenty eight hundred years ago, the Bible was written. What time frame did they they have this level of success? They had to have a successful trading and farming community for you know a level of craftsmanship. They had that twenty eight hundred years ago. They, indeed. How much earlier than that did they have that? Is there any art? So te technology develops. It depends which technology you're asking about. This is all about weaving, weaving and micro engraving. So weaving has been around forever. Now you're just weaving gold thread, which had to be beaten into thread. But that's not a high level of technology necessarily, right? Um, micro engraving, I don't know what that involves. I am not skilled in the stone. I don't know stones very well, but um, but it, it was a specialty. So it was expensive. Like not everybody did it and not everybody had access to it. So there are some of these technologies that are known, but nobody has access to it. Tiny little chisels of hard wood and a rock. It's very difficult to get the the stick not to break. Right. And no, of course, no computers to figure out the placement of it. Right. So, so it's all done by skill and and. Yeah. So the technology exists, but we can say today, you know, the technology to take a pig's heart, you know, and, and transplant it into a human is there. How many people who have heart disease have access mm -hmm. to that option? Right. So and go to other places in the world today where technologies exist that most people do not have access to. Um, all right, so this is the work of a lapidary. This is the work of micro engraving. And those names, six, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. This is going on the shoulder pieces that hold the aphode onto the high priest. On the two stones, you shall make seal engravings, the work of a lapidary of the names of the people of Israel, having bordered them with frames of gold. So the stones are bordered in frames of gold and the names and a seal um, is engraved on them. Attach the two stones to the shoulder pieces of the aphod as stones for remembrance of the Israelite people, whose names Aharon shall carry upon his two shoulder pieces for remembrance before God. Okay, so remember that. <laughs> See what he did there. Um, so Avnezi Karon, stones of remembrance that Aharon's going to bring with him into the, the space that only he can go into, right? That only the priests can go into. Then make frames of gold and two chains of pure gold, Braid these like corded work and fasten the corded chains to the frames. You shall make a breast piece of decision, worked into a design. Make it the style of the aphod. Make it of gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns and of fine twisted linen. It shall be square and doubled, a span in length and a span in width. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. And set in it mounted stones in four rows of stones. The first row shall be a row, and some of these terms are debated. Trust me. Trust me, I went down the rabbit hole because of the new ark that we're building and the new sanctuary stuff. I went down the rabbit hole um, big time. So um, some of these are debated, like what this means. Because remember, there, there are terms from a long time ago. What people interpret them to mean are, are different. Um so a row of carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald. The second row, turquoise, sapphire, and amethyst. The third row, jacinth, and agate, and a crystal. 
the fourth row, a barrel, lapis lazuli, and a jasper. Barrel can also be, here's the rabbit hole, onyx. I'm giving you a little hint about what might be in the new things. Onyx, a lapis lazuli, and a jasper. They shall be framed with gold in their mountings. The stones shall correspond in number to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 corresponding to their names. They, they shall be engraved. All right. The tribal stones. Yes. They shall be engraved with the names. What happened? <laughs> what? Yeah. What? Uh, I'm sorry, y'all. It's only been three years since I've been using this technology. Okay. The stone shall correspond in number to the names of the tribes of Israel. They shall be engraved with seals with its name, engraved like seals, each with its name for the 12 tribes. So by seals, they mean something you would use to seal a document, right? You would have a lapidary make you a seal in a ring or on the uh, corner of your fringed garment, and you would roll that in the clay to sign documents with your legal signature. So that's what these are made like, like seals. So this is on the front of the breastplate, one for each of the 12 tribes. Their, their names on it, a different color for each one. Um, then it's to be fastened. And then we're going to get how the breastplate is held on. Aaron shall carry the names of the descendants of Israel on the breastpiece of decision over his heart when he enters the sanctuary. Again, what's it for? Lezikaron, for remembrance, lifnei yudhevavhe, before God, tamid, regularly. I don't like the translation at all times. He's not in there at all times, right? It can't mean always. He's not always in there. Tamid, regularly. When he goes in there, this is what he's supposed to wear. Okay. He's. The, we have the urim and tumim in there, and then we're going to close it out with 38. We're dealing now with the forehead of Aharon. On his forehead, where is it? <laughs> Here we go. 36. Sorry, I lied. You will make a tzitz of uh, pure gold. Something Tzitz is a blossom, a sprout. So this is something that's going to be sprouting from Aharon's head, essentially. You're going to make it of pure gold and you're going to engrave on it the seal inscription, Kodesh Ladonai, holy to God, set aside to God. Suspend it on a cord of blue so that it may remain on the headdress. It shall remain on the front of the headdress. It shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may take away any sin arising from the holy things that the Israelites consecrate. From any of their sacred donations, it shall be on his forehead at all times to win acceptance before them for yud heh vav So this has the ability somehow to take away like anything that's sticking to the service items, any any dross that hasn't been cleaned somehow, this band, Kodesh Ladonai, declaring Holy to God will somehow like take care of that. And then is this gold brought from that they borrowed from the Egyptians? Probably. If we want to get literal about the story, yes. They wouldn't have it otherwise. Right. All right. So then, then we finish out with 
um, what he's supposed to wear and, uh, and then he's to wear this when he is serving in the sanctuary so that they do not incur punishment and die. It shall be a law for all time for him and as for his offspring to come. All right. So in thinking about what are we going to do with this this year? We've done so many things with this text. We've done so many things looking into where this appears in the ancient Near East, where these influences come from. Where did they get all the materials? What are we going to do this year? This year, it just takes one sentence for me to go down a very interesting path. And I was reading in the commentary that, which I hadn't really thought about a lot before, that when Aaron takes the, the stones on his shoulders and the names of the tribes on the breastplate, and Kodesh Ladonai on his head and goes into the place that only, you know, the places only priests can go. And, and of course he's going to go into the Holy of Holies and only he can go in there. This is, these are the only words in the sanctuary. I hadn't really thought about that. These are the only words involved in the cultic service. That's it. There's absolutely no spoken words. So we who are a people who are very connected to the liturgy, who are very connected to studying the word, who are very connected to studying the stories and what language is used and how we pull that forward and what goes on it as that word develops. And then we pull it into our liturgy. And then what does that mean for us? And how do we access that as moderns? We spend a lot of time talking, which is, of course, using words. And we spend a lot of our time as Jews talking about the words that we're talking about using words. We are a very verbose people. So it's interesting to go to our founding rituals, which are in the Mishkan. And even if you want to accept that there is no actual Mishkan, there's debate about that. Let's say there isn't an actual Mishkan. We know there was a temple, right? And we know temple worship was based on on Mish, on the Mishkan, even if you say there was no Mishkan, temple worship was based on ancient Near Eastern pagan worship. What did that look like? In pagan ancient Near Eastern worship, you had a priesthood. Only the priests knew what went on in terms of the cult. Only the priests. The people brought their offerings of grain, of wine, of baskets of fruit, of oil, they bring forward their sacrifices. They bring that forward. The priests come out of the saint of the sacred space to receive them and they take them and place them on a gifting bench made of plaster inside the sacred space where only the priests can go. This is very much ancient Israelite cult practice, but we know there's a shift in theology. Right. There's a change. You're not offering these things to the gods who will eat them. God forbid, because we don't have a God who can eat. The other thing we tend to forget is that and I tend to forget also because we mash it all together is that the priests were a separate class. When you talk about the elite intellectuals, the elite theologians, 
If you look at the priestly Torah itself, the priestly texts, God is never talked about as anthropomorphic or anthropopathic. God is never described as having any kind of human form, nor is any kind of thought or emotion ascribed to God. In the priestly Torah, we have a lot of it in other places. God gets angry. They pray to God to do this and to do that. It's God's will that. God requests that. God responds. God forbid for the priestly Torah. In the priestly Torah, there is no anthropomorphism and no anthropopathism. So God is a force. We've talked about this when we've looked at pure and impure. God is a force, is a energy kind of metaphor is what we could use. And you have to do what you need to do to prepare the sacred space so that that force can abide there and protect the people just by virtue of the fact that it's there. So you're doing everything you can to draw it and to not repel it. That's why everything has to be kept pure or the divine power force can't be there. So you don't want to repel it. There is an understanding of that in the ancient Near East. There's also propitiatory, propitiating um, (laughs) prayers in pagan tradition to the god and to the goddess that you're dealing with so that you should ask them they should favor you, right? And not Zeus shouldn't throw his thunderbolt at you. Right. So you might offer a sacrifice, let's say, of your virgin daughter or right, whatever. So um, so that is very common in, in pagan worship. So so Israelite worship moves to a place of there are not multiple gods. God does not have a form. God does not have a body. God does not have emotions, according to the priests. All right. So why is that such a big deal that there is no speech in the Priestly cultic practice. Let's, let's ask the scholars, shall we? Let's ask the experts. All right. So as always, because these sheets are public and my name is on it, um, I put the verses that we're dealing with. I know we just read them. You don't need it, but people who find the sheet are going to go, what is she talking about? So yeah. just to be clear, the priests are doing this show going into the Mishkan. On, 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 on behalf of the people of Israel. Correct. And then when they come out, what is their job? Is it anything? What do you mean? Is that, is that the only thing that comes to do? Their job is only to prepare themselves and scarf and then go and finish kind Yes. They have a lot of work to do. They're busy all day. Because you're slaughtering a lot of animals. You have to clean up a lot of blood. The difference between what they're doing and other cultic practices, they're doing it on behalf of the people. I think other pagan religions would argue they are too. So that their people don't lose in a war. So that their people can get, can be forgiven for their, you know, we, we could argue to what extent and what degree, but the priesthood is there to function as a mitigating staff between the people and the gods. Okay. Same question last year, but not the answer. Okay, great. This is job security, so go ahead. I'm thinking of the Midrash going to the desert and the holy of holies in the space. 
and I'm good with the temple, which is stationary. Okay. But I can't, like, so the Holy of Holy space is moving. Yes. Times. Yes. It's being basically constructed by the priests. Yes. So they're creating, every time they pick up and move, they either consecrate or they, so it's not, it's not so much God is creating the holy space, the priests are creating. No, 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 God forbid. God forbid the priests are creating holy space. God forbid. The priests are demarcating what will be within the space of the Mishkan, the place that the ark resides. The God's presence on the ark creates the holiness of the space. So he, she, or whatever, resides in the ark. Uh, no, God forbid. Yeah, God forbid. Because Malochoharetz Kavoto, David, the whole world is filled with God's glory. The ark, the, the, of course, this is a holy space. The difference is there is a concentrated energy of the divine that rests on the ark. It follows you around. Yes. You're carrying God with, you're carrying God's apartment with you. When you put the apartment down and you do the right things, God moves in. In a different way than God is everywhere else, but God is everywhere. So you're, so the space, okay, it's a movable space. Right. You, what you're doing is you're moving the magnet that draws the divine energy down. Yes, yes. And a top, beautiful, a, a, a mobile atomic power plant. Yes. Except that Uh-oh. you need the lead. I'm not, no, I'm not disagreeing, but you need the, you need, you don't need the spoken words. I mean, this is again in P context. You need the letters that are on the shoulders and the breastplate. That's like the key that turns the, actually turns the energy that's in the atomic power plant on. Not sure. I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure so that's the key. there's a reason. There, there to... We're told the reason. For remembrance. For whom? Is one of the big questions. A remembrance for whom? Like, oh, who are you? Oh, let's look at your shoulder. Right. Oh, you're so coming on behalf. Is it a remembrance for God? R- Richard just gave us a beautiful idea of why we might say no to that. Because what? God's like, who are you? I don't know who you are. God forbid. So if it's not God, who's it a remembrance for? Huh? Well, the, people. the people aren't there. For Aaron. Why would it, why would that make sense? Why would we put a, a, all of this on Aaron as a remembrance for Aaron? Well, we haven't got to the golden calf yet, but it seems like he might need a reminder. <laughs> Very interesting. So some people, to your point, Aviva Zornberg really leans hard into Midrashim that say, there's no early or late in Torah. This actually comes after the golden calf as a rectification of the golden calf because Aaron forgot. So beautiful, beautiful Hana. I, um, why else might, so let's say this is before the golden calf that what, what Hana's pointing out is the danger of forgetting why you get to wear all this. You're wearing the most expensive garments the people of Israel can afford. 
to make. Why do you get to wear that? It can easily, you slide down the thing of I'm entitled to it. I'm special, right? I'm the rabbi. Of course I get to have a beautiful office, right? Don't you forget. You get to wear it because you represent the Zikaron is for Aaron. You represent the people. You are here to serve the people, right, in your doings of these things that will draw the people close to God and God close to the people. All right. So, so then, so I've given you the verses that we just looked at. All right. So let's, I'm going to look at Yechezkel Kaufman brought to us by Israel Knoll, who I had the great honor of studying with at Hartman in Israel, uh, with Knoll. Um, I didn't understand half of what he said. Uh, I was like, sure. Okay. Um, he knows these, he's an expert in Israelite cult practice and he's an expert at knowing what comes from Samuel, what comes from this, what comes from that. We find in, you know, mentioned in the prophets. We he just can quote all this stuff. It's ridiculous. Um, and remember that the Torah is layered. We tend to think of this first and then comes the prophets, but we know some of this stuff is right at the same time. He knows all of that. He knows which texts are at the same time, which is, he would argue came earlier or later. I've told you there's an argument for an early or a late P, right? So Knoll is going to be quoted. He brings forward in his article from the Journal of Biblical Literature. He brings forward and in his book, The Sanctuary of Silence, he brings forth, uh, forward the argument of Yechezkel Kaufman, who he responds to a lot. So let's look at Kaufman on this idea of the only words were these words written on Aaron. The priestly temple, says Kaufman, is the kingdom of silence. In Egypt, Babylonia, and in the pagan world in general, word and incantation were integral parts of the cult. Act was accompanied by speech. The spell expressed the magical essence of cultic activity. In more developed form, pagan rituals might be accompanied by mythological allusions relating to events in the life of the gods. Speech thus articulated the magical mythological sense of the right. He makes no reference to the spoken word in describing temple rites. All the various acts of the priest are performed in silence. Not only of spells and psalms, no place in the priestly cult, even prayer is absent. Priestly speech is found only outside the temple or apart from the essential cultic act. This, this silence is an intuitive expression of the priestly desire to fashion a non-pagan cult. Though the detail of the priestly rites magical in origin and essence could not be done away with, the magical motivation made implicit in the accompanying utterances was eliminated. Therewith, the Israelite, you can tell how long ago this article was written, therewith, the Israelite cult became a domain of silence. The details of ritual lost their intrinsic meaning and became a vehicle expressive of human submission to the command of God. The silence of the temple cult served to heighten the awe of holiness. The priestly cult in the temple of silence 
could not contain the abundance of popular religious sentiment. Around the silent sanctuary throbbed the joyous popular cult, all tumult and passion. So what is Kaufman arguing? Kaufman is arguing in the pagan cult, you did your rituals accompanied by an incantation that often was referencing something in the life story of the god or the gods. And it was that magical invoking of that story that makes the ritual efficacious. You couldn't get rid of the tree in the house at the season. So what do you do? You want to move away from paganism. Pagans celebrate solstice with a tree in the house. What do you do? Huh? Get rid of the tree. You don't get rid of the tree. God forbid you can't get rid of the tree if you want these people to be in your in your religion. It's a Hanukkah bush. <laughs> you make the tree a Hanukkah bush. But before that, what do you make the tree? This is how much we live in a Christian culture. You make the tree a Christmas tree. The tree was a pagan tree, people. It was a pagan ritual. If you want those people to come into your new religion, Christianity, and stay there, bring their symbol. You have to bring their symbol and their practice in the winter into your new religion, or they're not gonna buy it. They're not gonna stay. Cause do they really care about the theology of now there's a son of God and sin and blah, blah, and blah, blah, and he will save you? The popular religion? No! They don't care. They want their tree. That's what they care about, right? They care. Popular religion doesn't really care about the theology. Whatever. Y'all talk amongst yourselves. We want the party. We want the songs. Who's got the playlist? Like who's, who brought the, who brought the speakers? Like you, we, we want to dance. That, that's what we care about. Kaufman is saying that's exactly the same in Israelite religion. The people didn't care about, is there an incantation? Is there, they weren't a part of the cult, elite temple structure. They were on the streets partying and then leave the streets and you get to kind of the temple compound. And now you've got your Levites, right? You got your band, right? And if you're, if you're, wealthy enough and have connections, you can get close enough to hear the band. Otherwise, you've got people strumming guitars and on their, I guess, lyres, whatever, and on their lutes and whatever, playing and everybody's singing, right? There's, Kaufman is saying there's layers of Israelite relationship to the religion of ancient Israel. And out on the streets, you have people dancing and singing and eating and whatever, but in the temple itself, it is a sanctuary of silence. So, so uh, not to make this sound blasphemous in any way. God forbid. But um, is it sort of like the people are going to keep on partying like it's the golden calf, and what you all do in there, we can't see. We don't care what you call it. 
we're going to continue having the good time we have. And then essentially all the gold stuff, that's what they, whatever they do with the golden calf, we don't care. So I think, yes, to an extent, to an extent, they're not allowed to make a golden calf, right? There's things they're not allowed to do, but you can sing the songs that you say at the calf. You can still do the dances you did around the calf. There just can't be a calf. Because we now, elite, have moved on, and we now understand the right way to be in relationship to this force that we're calling yud vav in this new religion. How new is it for the converted Canaanites on the street? Maybe not so new. But maybe, and this was the first time I had this insight, maybe, maybe, this is one of the reasons the cult practice of the Israelite priesthood is published. We're not doing the same thing that the Canaanites were doing. We don't speak words when we do this. We don't sing a hymn to Isis when we offer the incense smoke. We don't, right? We're not invoking magical formulas to make the ritual work. We are responding to the revealed command of the highest power that says, this is what you do and it will work. And there's nothing that has to be spoken. Maybe that's why it's published. David? I was going to say the, the emphasis on the garments, the part that we just read in the session, is not really word of God and the commandments. It's about, and actually it's the tribes. It's, it's, it's more like being a people and, you know, uniting all tribes that are probably have trouble getting along together, I would imagine. Yes. Um, you know, it's, that's the focus. It, yes. It's not, it's not, um, sort of high gluten theology symbolism. I mean, it's all about, it's, it's like the flag of the United States. You know, you think a little bit of the star, you know, like here are all these states who, right. Each other. It's all nice. So it's very similar, right, to the United States, right, who were a bunch of different states. Right. Who had their own kind of founding, their own founding culture, be it the Spaniards, be it the English. Like who, so you have your different states. Once they decide to be a permanent federation, confederation. Thank you. Once they decide to be permanent in relationship to each other as a people, as a nation. Right. Now your, your highest symbols are of that confederacy. Exactly beautifully said. Yes, that's what this is about. The breastplate with the 12 names. It's exactly what it's about. 12 tribes who have a loose confederation who are now coming together as a permanent nation state. That becomes the highest symbology. That's a word that you have at the highest level of the cult is keeping that federation together and keeping them protected, and that means victorious and pure, right? Because if God's force can't be there because you're impure with sin and all that other stuff, then you can't win the war. Okay. So now let's let's see. He responds in much more depth to Kaufman, but I wanted to bring stuff that was interesting for, for, for our discussion. Maybe. Okay. The, the writings of this school, now this is Knoll, commenting on Kaufman, who he brought forward. The writings of this school contain, meaning the priestly Torah, contain no description of God, 
and the only action directly ascribed to God is that of speech and commanding. According to the viewpoint of this school, the relation between God and Israel and the cultic structure that expresses this relationship are completely separate from any anticipation of providence or divine recompense and are not rooted in a mutual covenantal system. The complex of cultic imperatives of the priestly Torah does not contain even a single ceremony whose purpose is to infuse blessing and salvation or to directly ask for the fulfillment of any human request. It seems to me, this is Knoll, that the holy silence of the priest becomes far clearer against the background of this religious outlook, what he just mentioned, and what Kaufman's talking about. In the absence of a relationship, in the absence of a relationship of providence or recompense between God and Israel, there is no room, neither for petitionary prayer nor for hymns of thanksgiving. By its very nature, the language of prayer and hymn is permeated with anthropomorphic language concerning God. Neither is it consistent with the spiritual tendency of the priestly teaching, which tends to reject anthropomorphic and anthropopathic imagery. The refusal to ascribe any kind of characteristics or actions to God makes any positive speech concerning God impossible. Hence, the sole alternative open to one standing before the holy is absolute silence. And this may be seen from the combination of the testimony of the priestly Torah and that of the non-priestly strata. The temple complex was constructed of a series of circles of voice and silence distinct from one another. So he agrees with Kaufman that there are circles of speech and silence. You might say song and silence, right? That all exist at the same time but they are very distinct experiences that the only response, if you follow the theology of P the only response to the sacred is absolute silence. This once you really think about that and you take it in, this is way closer to liberal Jewish theology way So we tend to think of ourselves as so modern, we are so evolved, and we've left all that priestly nonsense behind. But really, petitionary prayer, think about it, petitionary prayer, which is the entire Sidur, thank you, thank you, thank you, help me, help me, help me, petitionary prayer, or even, what's the other one, Um, when you're praising God, either way. You're talking to a God, traditionally, that you believe is impacted by that. That is a way more anthropomorphic experience of God than P. P doesn't have a being to talk to. And talking to that being won't matter because you can't influence the sacred other than using the technologies you have to clean up what repels the sacred. What repels the divine energy? That's all you can do. There's no need. There's no reason to speak. So the P's so are the first Zen Buddhists. So P has a lot more in common with Buddhism, with other, like with very liberal Jewish tradition, like Kaplan, that says there is no supernatural being. 
We're not praying to anything. P is a lot closer to that than everything since, which is kind of mind-blowing if you really think about it. So the R from the stage. Ah, Dana. What was your question, Dana? I just pointed out there's a behavior of listening. Dana. Gold star for Dana. (laughs) Because where are we going? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. The service of the priest in the temple was accompanied by silence. The Levites sang in the courtyard, but the priests... Unlike their counterparts in other ancient religions, neither sang nor spoke while offering the sacrifices. The Zohar speaks of silence as the medium in which both the sanctuary above and the sanctuary below are made. (laughs) There were also Jews who cultivated silence as a spiritual discipline. Ratzlav Hasidim meditate in the fields. There are Jews who practice Ta'anit Dibur, a fast of words. Our most profound prayer, the private saying of the Amidah, is called Tfilah Belachash, the silent prayer. It is based on the precedent of Hannah praying for a child. The silence counts in the, the silence that counts in Judaism is thus Dana Fine, what? A listening silence. And listening, says Sachs, is the supreme religious art. Listening means making space for others to speak and be heard. As I point out in my commentary to the Sidor, there is no English word that remotely equals the Hebrew verb shma. It in, in its wide range of senses to listen, to hear, to pay attention, to understand, to internalize and to respond indeed. This was one of the key elements in the Sinai covenant when the Israelites having already said twice all that God says we will do. The third time, what do they say? All that God says we will do v'nishma. Na'aseh v'nishma. We will do and we will shma. It is the nishma. Listening, hearing, heeding, responding. That is the key religious act. From time to time, we need to step back from the noise and hubbub of the social war, social world and create in our hearts the stillness of the desert where, meaning where the Mishkan was, right? Within the silence, we can hear the cold mamadaka, the still, literally silent voice of God telling us we are loved, we are heard, we are embraced by God's everlasting arms, We, to use an anthropomorphism, we are not alone. One of the things that makes this Torah study work so well is that you are a listener, too. You're teaching, but you're listening. Still may it be. <laughs> Still may it be. I, um, thank you. Um, so let's look at Rabbi Joshua Bodiger for the Center for Contemporary Musar Practice. If the Jewish people are truly a people of the word, then by definition, we must also be a people who commit to understanding, practicing, and conditioning silence. Silence and speaking are mutually dependent. As we see in our larger societal context, if there is not a silence for our words to arise from, then there is only cacophony, words upon words, and a climate of outshouting one another, which I would argue is exactly the climate that we live in. Everybody out shouting everybody else. The world we currently inhabit is an unfortunate, <laughs> as he goes on to say, 
The world we currently inhabit is an unfortunate example of this. Words themselves have become debased, devalued, and utterly forgettable. At our retreat at IJS, we talked about words and silence. So this was kind of on my heart and mind. Um, and uh, think about, so they asked us to think about words that have become like bereft of real meaning and words that once had great power. And one of them was genocide. Right. So like, you know, right. So the more words are just a cacophony, the more they are devoid of power and meaning. Even Ill, Ivan Illich, in an essay called The Eloquence of Silence, writes that there are three types of silence. The one is one is pure listening, the silence of humility, right? An authentic interest uh, in the other. And uh, I'll, I know we got to end soon. So um, the second kind of silence is the silence that precedes words, the silence that is a preparation for speech, a considering of what ought to be said and how. And the third type of silence is the silence of love beyond words. It is, a is God willing, where we are left once we say at the end of the Seder, Lishana Haba'ah Birushalayim. Um, we look around the table and beyond the table and experience such a shtika, um, a silence that is beyond words, right? That is the echoing of, of a certain kind of silence. Yes. Right? Uh, a poem that our teacher shared with us um, called Keeping Quiet at our IJS retreat. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. And I'll close with silence by Billy Collins. There is the sudden silence of the crowd above a player not moving on the field and the silence of the orchid, the silence of the falling vase before it hits the floor, the silence of the belt when it is not striking the child, the stillness of the cup and the water in it, the silence of the moon and the quiet of the day far from the roar of the sun, the silence when I hold you to my chest, the silence of the window above us and the silence when you rise and turn away. And there is the silence of this morning which I have broken with my pen, a silence that had piled up all night, like snow falling in the darkness of the house, the silence before I wrote a word, and the poorer silence now. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, 
www.ourki.org.